0: Hey everyone, Liz here. Welcome to our latest episode. We're super excited to be back, and we're also excited to welcome Charlie, a producer here at Pulso, to the show. Hello, Liz. Hey, Charlie. It's weird to see you from behind the scenes now in front of the mic. How does it feel?
1: Normally, I might be nervous, but I also am the editor for the show, so I know if I really mess it up that bad, I am just going to get rid of it, and no one will know but you.
0: This is true. All of that is what happens behind the scenes, you all. (laughs) On that same note, we want to give you all some insight into this episode. Charlie, do you want to tell everybody the backstory?
1: Yeah. So this was one of the first stories that we ever worked on together, just after we started the show. And it was supposed to be about the story of Roy Benavides, a Latino soldier who earned the Medal of Honor in Vietnam, and how since the Black Lives Matter protests of last summer— there have been calls to change the name of Texas's Fort Hood to Fort Benavides, and we were almost finished with the episode, and then something happened.
0: Yeah, something really terrible happened. A young Mexican-American woman named Vanessa Guillén, she was a soldier at Fort Hood, actually assaulted by her superior and then murdered by a fellow soldier. This news was obviously devastating, and it reminded us of the horrors that happened within the U.S. military and that actually very few cases like Vanessa's end up making the news. Given the tragedy and the ongoing investigations to get to the bottom of the murder, we decided to pause on producing the episode as we processed and listened to Vanessa's family, as well as hearing from many other Latinos who were sharing their experiences with assault and abuse in the military. A year later, we still want to tell the story of Roy Benavides, but we're approaching this episode with a wider lens to make room for the complicated relationship nuestra gente has with the armed forces.
2: My name is Carlos de la Cruz. I was an intelligence officer with the Defense Intelligence Agency. And prior to that, I had seven awesome years as a sergeant in the United States Army as a human intelligence collector.
0: To help wrap our heads around all of this... I decided to talk to one of my best friends from high school who was part of the military. We've stayed close these last 15 years, except for the chapter of his life when he was enlisted. It's part of his career that I'm not too familiar with because I didn't really want to know, and he really couldn't share much either. So this is a conversation I'm really curious to have. Here's something I don't know about you. Did you have any nicknames? In the army.
2: DLC. That's Cause, it. Because De La Cruz was too hard for white people.
0: There you go. That's <laughs> there you go. That's what I was looking for. No,
2: and, and I I make fun I make fun of it that way just because he, you know, he was he was a white NCO who who said that. Dude from Texas. <laughs> he's 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 been blown up a I couple too many it. times, too many concussions. It. But he's a great guy.
0: I remember your stories, dude, where you would share with me uh, in your Immediate circle of people and and your peers, you're the only one. And I remember you saying, you know, people thought you were African-American. Yes. That identity piece, I'm super curious to hear more about how you navigated being a minority within a minority within a minority given your
2: role. 100%. And I'll start off by saying that the beauty of the Army, the part that I enjoyed the most about the Army is the amount of diversity that's within the Army and the fact that no one cares Really, no one really cares about the color of your skin. It's about the mission. But on several occasions, I had to defend my Hispanicness.
0: What were some of the things that you had to explain about your Hispanic identity when you were in the Army?
2: That the Dominican Republic is not a province in Mexico. That not all Latinos are are the same, right? Not all all of us speak the same dialect, if you will, of, of, of Spanish, um, that, that we are all different and we have our own cultural differences.
0: Did you ever feel discriminated against because you were Latino?
2: Not obviously. Not um, it, it wasn't in the forefront. There is
0: But you can feel d- some sort of, course, of tension there that, that you were not the same.
2: There's systemic racism within the system of the army. And it's not because there is someone consciously pulling the strings to make it racist for this particular say, sect of people or this unit of people. It's not, it's not like that. It's just certain kind of people historically have been promoted at certain rates than others. For yeah. instance, within the officer ranks, everyone kind of knows you're not going to make it to a four-star general if you didn't go to West Point. Sure, and there are very sp-
0: few Latinos at West Point uh, and there course. are very few people of color who go to West Point. And, there and are very
2: and, women, yep. very limited numbers of women who of go to West Point. So it's one of those things that systemically it ends up kind of being that way. But person to person interaction, we all recognize that the uniform, the flag is the most important. And at the end of the day... When the bullets are flying by and hurting your brother, and no matter what color it is, sister of yours, no matter what color, where she's from, you go and you do whatever you can to save that person.
0: I want to be as inspired and as optimistic about the army as you're being with these anecdotes that you're sharing, but sure. I can't help but remember that Vanessa Guillen is no longer here with us because of the tragic murder after the sexual harassment that was then found uh, that she experienced and many other women are experiencing within the army. And so, again, as someone on the outside, it's really hard to forget about how Latinos are being treated within the system. You know, 16% of active duty members who are Latino uh, report Not only sexual harassment, but discrimination at really high rates. Only 8% of those who are Latino reach officer ranks, which is what you were just sharing with us, right? And this past year, we've heard story after story after story of women, especially Latinas, coming out in support of Vanessa Guillen's family because we are not hearing enough about that ugly side of the army. And
2: The the first thing I'll say is... I am Vanessa Guillen, 100%. I, I think I, I, I became witting of, of what's going on around the May time frame, a couple of days after she disappears, when the family starts going on Twitter. And, and my first thought was I wasn't surprised. Why? I remember we were, we were home on a Friday night, and I was throwing a get-together for my buddies, and a sister unit lost a pair of night vision goggles at one of the ranges on Fort Lewis and everyone in the battalion, about 1500 soldiers, was called into work at 930 at night. I wonder when Vanessa disappeared and at four o'clock she doesn't show up to formation, if there was a similar call in that unit. I am willing to put everything on the line that there was not. She wasn't night vision goggles. She was just a private.
0: And there were so many women who said that they did speak up, Carlos, in their moment. And that they weren't paid attention to. And that due diligence that you're talking about is the bottom of the funnel, I would say. Is there a barrier at the top of that funnel at that first reporting of an incident? Do you think that people in the army feel comfortable speaking up when there's an issue? No. Why?
2: Because in some way, shape, or form, it comes against the mission. I know that Sergeant So-and-so is the best person at this particular task, but he's doing things he's not supposed to. Let me not say anything because we need him. What is this going to do for my own personal record and my own personal career advancement? But there's still a human factor, right? Right. One of the best lessons and, and more beautiful thing that I find about the Army is the camaraderie between soldiers and the fact that you should be a good battle buddy. That's what we call each other, battle buddies. It's my responsibility to care for my buddy.
0: Who was caring for Vanessa? Who was her buddy?
2: The system wasn't. The chain of command wasn't. Due diligence wasn't. So who was her buddy? No one.
0: What do you think has to change so that People like Vanessa are protected and are given the same camaraderie and respect like you felt that night.
2: When you're hearing rumors and you have suspicions that things are wrong, taking the time to get to the bottom of it. And if it's nothing, it's nothing. That's fine. It was worth it. And if your unit is a terrible work environment where people don't feel safe enough to come to you as a commander, then you have a problem and you will fail.
0: There is no true justice for Vanessa Guillen. Justice would mean that she'd be alive today. There has, however, been progress on bipartisan legislation in her honor. The I Am Vanessa Guillen Act is a bill in the House of Representatives that would reform the Army's sexual assault and sexual harassment prevention plans and require independent professionals to conduct harassment investigations. The Vanessa Guillen Military Justice Improvement and Increasing Prevention Act is up for consideration in the Senate. It would change how a service member is prosecuted under the military justice system. It aims to improve training on sexual assault response and living accommodations on bases. Vanessa's story will never be forgotten. She's already motivated us to act and prevent another soldier's life from ending like hers. We're going to switch gears here to another story we wanted to talk about. One of hope, inspiration, and someone who I know has really inspired you, Carlos, the famous Roy Benavides.
2: To me, he is the top. When you walk through a special forces battalion and you walk in through the front door, chances are you're going to see his picture somewhere in the hallway. When I decided to go special operations, he was a very... Beautiful thing to find because I saw one of me doing that. And it was something that empowered me to believe I can do it too.
0: After the break, we tell the story of one of the most famous Latino war heroes. Roy Benavides had a tough upbringing. He grew up in Lindanao, Texas, a little town about 200 miles from the Mexican border. It's the kind of town with a post office, a general store, and not much else. When he was born in 1935, there were less than 60 residents there.
1: His father, who's a Mexican farmer, and his mother, a Yaki Indian, both die by the time Roy is eight. So he and his brother have to go live with their aunt, uncle, and eight cousins in El Campo. But in El Campo, he would see signs outside of stores saying, no blacks or Mexicans. White folks in town would sometimes throw quarters on the street and laugh at children fighting over them. As for Roy and his siblings, they spend their days working in cotton fields from sunrise to sunset, exhausted and hungry.
0: There reached a point where he had enough of living that way. He decided to get out the only way he knew how. Here's Roy.
3: I dropped out of school and I ran away from home. I'm not proud of that. I needed to learn a skill. I needed an education. I joined the Texas National Guard, and I heard about Airborne. I heard about that extra pay that you get for jumping out of airplanes. But the darn recruiters never told me what the training was like. For every mistake that you make, you do push-ups.
0: Despite all those push-ups, Roy's a pretty happy guy. He found a home in the military, and for the first time, he felt stability and purpose in his life. He was sent to Korea, then Germany, and eventually came home to marry his longtime girlfriend. Things were looking up.
1: Yeah, so things are finally going well for Roy, but by this point, it's 1965. The Cold War is in full fury, and the conflict in Vietnam is boiling over. The U.S. is supporting the southern Vietnamese government, which is being overrun by communists from the north. So the army sends soldiers and advisors to train the local militias. One of those advisors is Roy. He's an educator. He
2: is uh, a brother. He is a, a leader of Vietnamese people who become soldiers and who become militia. He is leading them to defend their homeland.:
0: Okay, let's back up for a sec. Our involvement in the Vietnam War was an utter disaster. Our military presence in that country dragged on and on, and tens of thousands of lives were lost because of it. We could talk for days about U.S. imperialism. In fact, we've touched on U.S. imperialism in Latin America in other episodes. It's wrong. U.S. warmongering has caused disastrous conditions across the world, and as my team and I often discuss, ironically, It's in part what has fueled the massive migration to the US from Central and South America. It's really complicated. We're no fans of war here at Pulso, but we are fans of nuestra gente. And Roy is worth celebrating.
1: So, Roy is in southern Vietnam, and he's in charge of training the local soldiers. But as the war creeps closer, he's becoming more and more involved. And while on a patrol, alone, deep in the jungle, he takes a step that will change his life. He steps on a landmine. A group of Marines hear the explosion and come running to find Roy unconscious and bleeding. He's rushed into surgery, then evacuated back to a military hospital in Texas. There, he's told by doctors that he'll never walk again, and he'll have to be discharged from the military. His future is bleak, not being useful to the Army, and he's afraid of becoming a burden to his family. But Roy, being who he is, has other plans.
3: That night, I would slip out of bed and crawl to a wall using my elbows and my chin. My back would just be killing me, I'd be crying. But I'd set myself against a wall. I'd stand there and move my toes right and left, right. Every single chance I got, the nurses would catch me sometimes, they would chew me out, give me a pill, a sleeping pill, put me to sleep. Nine months later, here comes my medical discharge paper. Jumped out of bed, and I stood up right before him, and I moved just a little bit. He said, Sergeant, I'm sorry. Even if you can stand up, you'll never be able to walk. If you walk out of this room, I'll tear the papers up.
0: And that's exactly what he did. Months later, he walked out of the hospital with his wife by his side. The army sends Roy to a desk job back at base in Texas, but he's determined to get back to Vietnam. He spends the next few years training, rebuilding his body, studying tactics and field manuals. Then he undergoes the toughest training in the military, special operations.
2: He becomes a Green Beret. And to give a little bit more insight into what Green Berets are, they're not just tankers, they're not just shooters, they can do it all. They're not SWAT teams, if you will. They are the premier fighting force in the United States Army. That is where the true professionals, the true masters of their craft go to to actually make a really big impact on whatever it is that they're touching.
0: A few months later, he's back in Vietnam. His codename is Tango Mike Mike, or TMM, which stands for That Mean Mexican. TMM is deployed near the Cambodia-Vietnam border, where he'll face his greatest test. There had been reports of enemy soldiers sneaking across to attack. Roy was attending mass when he heard the SOS call.
3: I heard on the radio something like a popcorn machine. Then I heard voice get us out of here get us out of here come in and get us out quick and i saw some helicopter pilots run to the flight line scrambling i ran right behind him i saw a bag of medical supplies I picked it up went over to my helicopter got on the helicopter we got on with the forward air controller the guy us in he said you can't go in there you can't go in it's too hot little did i know that i was going to spend six hours in the hell
0: Roy arrives to a desperate scene. The group walked right into the middle of a thousand enemy soldiers. From the air, he can see bullets flying through the trees. It's too dangerous for the helicopter to land near the stranded soldiers, so Roy tells the pilot to go lower, and he jumps from the hovering helicopter and runs to reach the survivors. The next six hours are an adrenaline-filled blur. He gathers the scattered survivors together and gives first aid. He calls in airstrikes to hold back the enemy, all under heavy fire. While leading the soldiers through the battle, Roy is shot seven times, stabbed and clubbed in the jaw with the butt of a rifle. When the rescue helicopter finally arrives, he gets all his fellow soldiers safely aboard before allowing them to pull his own horribly wounded body into the chopper. Then he collapses. Back at the base, doctors find Roy unconscious and think he's dead. So they lay him with the other fallen soldiers.
3: And they were putting us in body bags. I remember my feet being been lifted and I was inserted into the body bag and I could hear that zipper coming up and I thought, oh my God, no. My eyes were shut because I had blood all over my face and my eyelids. And I couldn't talk because my jaws were locked and I could hear that zipper coming up, coming up. And one of my buddies was yelling at the doctor. That's Roy. That's Roy Benavides. The doctor said, I'm sorry. There's nothing I can do for him. And that zipper just, just coming up. I was trying to wiggle in my own blood. And finally, that doctor filled my heartbeat. When I felt that hand on my chest, I made the luckiest shot I ever made in my life. I spit in the doctor's face. So the doctor said, I think he'll make it.
1: Miraculously, Roy survives, but he's just clinging on to life. He's evacuated out of Vietnam and back to the U.S., where he starts a long, difficult recovery. But he has over 30 serious wounds from the battle, and no one knows whether he'll make it. The survivors from the battle tell the story of Roy's actions to higher-ups in the army. Clearly, his bravery warranted the highest award in the military, the Medal of Honor. But there was a problem. The battle took place across the border from Vietnam, and at this point, the U.S. wouldn't admit to military operations in Cambodia, so the request is quietly buried.
0: It takes Roy over a year to recover, and he stays in the army but isn't able to return to active duty again due to his injuries and constant pain. Finally, in 1976, Roy retires from the military and returns to Texas to try and continue living life the best he can. But his family can tell the war has taken a toll on him. Replaying the battle in his head over and over causes him to act in strange ways. He flinches when he hears a noise and is constantly peeking through the blinds. Between post-traumatic stress, pain from the injuries, and missing the life he had in the army, Roy finds himself searching for meaning all over again.
1: But suddenly he finds something to take him on a new mission. He learns about the Medal of Honor recommendation that had been buried years before, so he sets out to claim what he earned. The problem is, he can only remember bits and pieces of the battle, and to have any hope of being awarded the medal, there would need to be a full written account with eyewitnesses. But as far as Roy knows, there are no survivors left to tell the story.
0: Roy didn't directly acknowledge this himself, but some believed there were political reasons behind him not receiving the medal. He said, you were in Cambodia. The army doesn't want to admit that. They'll have to acknowledge you were there. They'll have to acknowledge you were there. Let's sit with that for a minute. Roy may be talking about a secret mission, but this is also symbolic of how invisible we are in the military. Since this country's founding, Latinos have fought and died in every American war. Education level, language barriers, and a long history of discrimination have kept Latinos from advancement in the military. Today, Latinos are the fastest-growing demographic in our armed forces, making up about 16% of soldiers on active duty, according to the Department of Defense. Yet, we make up only 8% of those who rise to officer ranks. The same year Roy fought his heroic battle, another American soldier fought a remarkably similar one. A white helicopter pilot named James P. Fleming risked his life to save the lives of six stranded Green Berets who had been trapped just over the Cambodian border. What was the difference between him and Roy? Well, Fleming was awarded the Medal of Honor just two years after the battle. Eight years later, Roy was still fighting to be seen.
1: So at this point, Roy has hit a dead end with his search, but his luck is about to turn around. Enter Chris and Fred Barbie, a father and son duo who are journalists at the local paper, the El Campo Leader News. The Barbies meet Roy and become obsessed with his story, They want to help him find answers, so they write an article about his mission for the medal in their paper. This little story from the local paper gets picked up by an international news outlet and makes it all the way to Australia, where it reaches a man named Brian O'Connor, the radio man who'd sent that desperate SOS call back in Vietnam.
0: It turns out Brian was so damaged by the battle that he'd been living as a recluse in Fiji since the war. But even recluses take vacations sometimes. And while traveling in Australia, he runs into the article about Roy in the newspaper and can't believe what he's reading. The last time he saw Roy was in a body bag. Neither had any idea the other had survived the battle. After reading the long struggle for the Medal of Honor, Ryan realizes he's the only one who can help Roy with his mission. They finally connect over the phone, talking and crying for hours, piecing together the fractured memories from that painful day. After their talk, Brian flies to Washington, D.C. to submit a 10-page report detailing the six hours from hell—the eyewitness account that Roy needed.
2: Mr. President, Master Sergeant Benavidez, and
1: distinguished guests,
2: welcome to the Pentagon.
1: Thirteen years after the battle, on February 24th, 1981, Roy Benavides, who once picked cotton and shined shoes, stands in front of President Reagan to be awarded the highest honor in the nation. Reagan turns to the press and says, If the story of his heroism were a movie script, you would not believe it.
0: That day, Roy became one of only 60 Hispanic soldiers in United States history to earn the Medal of Honor. But even though he was now a national hero, some people back home in El Campo felt Roy didn't deserve the medal. This anti-Latino discrimination that existed during his childhood was still alive and strong. His brother said it best. The town doesn't like to see Mexicans rise up to their level. Thousands of other Latino soldiers returned from Vietnam to find a country that treated them as outsiders too. They faced institutional racism, abuse by the police, and often had difficulty accessing healthcare and veterans' services. Even Roy, a Medal of Honor recipient, had to fight to keep his own disability aid. Despite these obstacles, that mean Mexican still had fighting left in him. He continued to serve by spending the rest of his life visiting schools and mentoring young people. He wanted to make sure other young Latinos didn't drop out of school like he did.
3: I remember when I was taught in jump school, an old master sergeant would tell me, Benavides, quitters never win, and winners never quit. What are you? Said, I'm a winner. I never forgot those three words, never. My life was spared for a reason, and I hope there's a good reason.
0: So Carlos, recently there's been talk about changing the name of Fort Hood, the military base where both Roy and Vanessa Guillen were stationed, to Fort Benavides. Right now, it's named after John Bell Hood, a Confederate general during the Civil War.
2: There is an effort to to, to rename it and it's one that every single person regardless of race, color, creed, gender, everyone can look at and say that's that's inspiring. That is beyond what any of us would ever dream of doing, and that is totally within the ethos of being a warrior. He just means so much because he did so much in a way that was incredibly selfless, looking out for the fellow brother in need. He comes out victorious because of his humanity. His care for another person is really what makes that story so beautiful.
0: You can subscribe to The Pulso Pod wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you heard, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell a friend to give us a listen. Have questions or story ideas to send our way? Send us an email to info at projectpulso.org. The Pulso Podcast is produced and edited by Charlie Garcia and Lisán Ramos. Additional editing by Steph Amaya Mora. Research and booking by Turilla Chavez, Rey Aguilera, Ana Mendoza, and Saldina Malouf. Original music by Julian Blackmore. Our cover art was designed by Jonathan Torres. And I'm your host, Lisa Larcon. The voices you hear in our intro, that's the Pulso team. Thanks for listening. Hey Pulso fam, I want to tell you all about Atlas Lingue, a Studio Ochenta podcast about language, culture, and communication. Have you ever wondered what your cat is trying to tell you? Or how Disney Pixar writers craft stories that resonate across numerous languages? Atlas Lingue host Luis Lopez explores these topics and so much more. It's a show about the confusing, wonderful, and weird world of language. And this season, they're diving deep into the language of culture online. They're interviewing content creators from different countries who document their daily lives and cultural backgrounds on YouTube, TikTok, and Instagram. New episodes air every other Monday wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also watch all the interviews on their YouTube channel at 80podcasts.